This is Pakinggan Pilipinas Season 2. I'm Elise Ponsalan, your fiction DJ. Welcome back to another season of Filipino audio fiction. So, what did you do in the last four-day weekend? The weather may not have been cooperative, and you may have missed out on a plane seat sale, so that you're stuck at home watching a TV series marathon until your eyes dry out, feeling like a complete and utter loser just because you didn't plan that weekend right, where you'd be sipping a mango shake under the shade of a coconut tree while your toes are licked by the waves of the sea. Don't worry, I was swallowed whole by my couch too. I was stuck at home during the four-day weekend. Our first audio fiction piece for the second season of Pakinggan Pilipinas is set in a lovely holiday beach resort, which may turn out to be the worst place to be in, if you're Clara the reporter in this story. It's read for us by horror author and travel writer Yvette Tan. A Fishy Tale by Apple Lehano Masibu Woman gives birth to twin fishes. On the plane ride from the capital, Clara had already written the words down on a page of her blue line notebook. Simple, direct, and in the active voice were how she liked her headlines. Never mind that her editor cared nothing for the style. More wit, Soledad Caringal would harangue her on deadline nights. A pun, a clever turn of phrase. You didn't want to get on Saul's bad side when she was putting an issue to bed, so Clara would nod and go back to her proofreading. Steam vented, The editor would lift her black plastic-framed glasses, give her eyes a brisk rubbing, then go back to punishing her Mac keyboard, along with the offending headline, changing much of her senior reporter's copy. Clara was long resigned to the idea that she wasn't being paid for her sterling writing skills. She had been on the staff of the National Star's weekend supplement longer than Saul had ever kept anybody else because Clara always got the job done. She could be assigned to find out which showbiz marriage had split up, the city police's theories about the mad killer of Kalookan, if the Virgin Mary of Tondo was indeed crying blood. Whatever it was, Clara always came back with a story. Wow, sexy! Queuing at the top of the wooden plank, waiting for her turn to get off the boat, Clara squinted to block the rays of the mid-morning sun. Randy, a junior photographer from the newspaper's pool, had already disembarked. Sweating from the April heat and weighed down by a few kilos of camera equipment, he still has the energy to appreciate two blonde tourists jiggling past in string bikinis. Clara liked his vibe. From the small airport on the mainland, they had taken a tricycle to the harbor, arriving just in time to catch Lovejoy, an outrigger boat painted white with pink polka dots, manned by a captain who looked no older than 17. Seeing Randy's camera, he'd gotten inquisitive. You are reporters? Clara had heard that if the locals couldn't speak to you in their native dialect, they preferred English to Filipino. There are many movie stars on the island this weekend. Aside from her tenacity at weeding out grammatical errors, Saul was also very good at sticking to her operational budget. One of her tactics was that if she was going to pay for plane tickets to send reporters on provincial trips, she would make them write at least a couple of stories. So Clara replied that yes, They were there for the 18th birthday of teenage movie star Mariela Laxon. The captain smiled wide. She's beautiful! Skin so white! Clara didn't need to prod too much for the captain to tell that he had seen the starlet playing beach volleyball with friends, 
wearing pink shorts and a pink t-shirt. Aside from that Mariella had a good spike, he couldn't tell them much more. So Clara went on to their other story, Bless the Migdig. Hearing the name, the captain furrowed his brows and fixed them with a look. Realizing that they were serious, he laughed, making a sound surprisingly like a girl giggling. Ang harap niyo Before Clara could answer, he continued, My uncle will love it. He shook his head, giggled again. Go talk to Victor. He has a bar on the beach. Then a light bump and the captain had parked Lovejoy on the beach, allowing her prow to rest on the sand, depositing her passengers in the water up to the thighs. Joining Randy off the boat, Clara imagines that the water must be wonderful against bare skin, but in her Levi, she gets only the sensation of soggy denim. Once on dry land, she looks around. As promised in everything she has ever heard about the famous tourist spot, the white sand stretches out seemingly endlessly to her left and right, interrupted only by the occasional spot of sunbathers. A Caucasian couple on matching striped towels is watching the disembarkation with lazy interest. Must have packed very bad paperbacks, Clara thinks. A tug on her arm brings her attention to a girl dressed in an ankle-length skirt the color of the Dalai Lama's robes, and a white shirt that from the chest proclaims the orange parasol. Miss Clara? the girl asks. She nods, and the girl smiles, displaying an unsettling mass of pink gums and very small teeth. Ma'am Christie sent me po. Sorry daw she couldn't pick you up, but the cook eloped with the bartender last night. True to its name, the resort houses guests in Nipa huts, each with an orange umbrella out front, giving shade to a hammock or a plastic lounge chair. Everything is arranged around a glass-covered courtyard. The girl with the gums, Gigi, they find out her name, shows them where they are to sleep that weekend. Clara's cottage number 8 has a lounge chair. Randy's number 7 boasts a hammock. The first thing Clara does is get out of her wet jeans and get under the shower. Salt water drying on skin was beginning to make her itch. Changed into an apple green sundress, she shakes out a sheaf of papers from her overnight bag and sits down on the bamboo bed with its batik sarong canopy. The first page is a photocopy of a tabloid. Provincial news, it says on the top, in stout black letters. Between a short article on rape incest and another on a drunken brawl, an item has been encircled in fluorescent yellow marker. A woman on an island province down south had given birth to a mermaid, an infant with scales instead of skin. There is a blurry photo of someone holding a white bundle. The child did not survive 48 hours, the news clipping said. The rest of the pages are similar, newspaper reports from faraway places surrounded by sea where young women had delivered creatures with scales, gills, fins, and tails, any or a combination of these. Everyone else in the National Star could say what they wanted about their weekend supplement's unconventional mix of stories. Some politics and economics, with plenty of sports, show business, popular culture, and even alternative medicine, but they couldn't scoff at the quality of the reportage. Saul's reporters did their homework. Clara rarely found these reports on the supernatural easy to write. Most everybody she interviewed would claim to have experienced something, but could seldom tell her what exactly, and could never show her. You have to work harder, Saul erupted that one time Clara had gotten up the nerve to raise the issue, and be at the right place at the right time, that's all. Shoving clippings and a notebook into a black knapsack, she gives her editor a mental nod. Clara was the kind of person who believed in doing a job well and thoroughly. The attitude had always been useful, her accurate corrections and perceptive queries getting Saul's attention so that she was plucked out of the proofreader's pool and made editorial assistant. From there, it was a steady rise to senior reporter. If she kept at it, she would probably get promoted to assistant editor in another year. 
Moving outside, Clara flicks leaves and bits of grass off the lounge chair before settling down for a nap. A half hour remained before their lunch appointment. Five minutes later, she's disturbed by a stinging sensation on her right knee. Reaching down with eyes closed, she brushes away whatever insect is there. Two more bites followed, but quickly by a few others. She jumps up with a yelp. Ants! It's just ants. Slapping at her legs, Clara turns toward the direction of the voice. He's a foreigner in his own lounge chair in front of a cottage directly across, separated from her by a few meters of cut grass and some fleshy tropical plants. Clara wonders why she hadn't noticed him before. I have something for the pain. The man disappears into his cottage, returning moments later with a white plastic bottle. Come and sit with me. Gargling, Clara thinks. He has a voice that sounds like he's gargling. Maybe because of this, along with the affinity for strange things she had developed for her job, or maybe because she just wants to stop scratching, Clara does as she is told. The foreigner is dressed in thick cargo pants and a cotton pullover, a fisherman's hat hiding the top half of his face. He hands over the caladrill and Clara sits down. She has almost finished with her leg when she becomes conscious of the man's faint wheezing, the sound of a blocked sinus or slight asthma. Looking up, she catches him watching her with eyes colored golden yellow, reminding Clara of the unblinking stare of giant lizards featured late one night on the National Geographic channel. A trick of the light, she decides, cocking her head to the left. From this angle, the man's eyes are the palest brown she has ever seen. The eyes almost disappear in creases as the man smiles and introduces himself. To Clara, the name sounds like Zerad. After making him say it twice, she asks if it's spelled Gerard. If you wish, he replies. Weird, Clara labels him. Perhaps not like Mr. Ramos, the subject of her last story. A bank manager who trekked to Mount Banahaw looking for UFOs, believing that he would be sent an extraterrestrial message containing the secrets to solving the country's economic problems. But there was definitely something unusual about the man's appearance. He wasn't bad-looking. Gerard was what she imagines other writers mean when they describe someone as having elegant features. A fine nose, sharp cheekbones, an angular chin. What bothered her was his skin, yellowish, lined, and papery. Thin, too, for up close, she can see the underlayer of purple veins. It was skin that belonged to a much older man. A hypochondriac who worried about skin cancer, Clara tags him. The clothes were much too hot for the weather. She couldn't figure out the chunky brown boots, though. What about you? What brings you to the island? Clara tells him of Blessed Migdig, asks if he knows her. All of us on the island are acquainted with each other. You write for a newspaper? She nods. I like newspapers. It gives me an immense satisfaction to read about how man is destroying himself. So maybe he is weird like Mr. Ramos, Clara thinks. She hands back the plastic bottle. Gerard opens it begins applying the thick pink lotion to his hands. What are those things on his skin, she wonders. There's a bumpy growth starting from under the man's sleeve and spreading over the back of his hands. It looks like layers of tiny pink flaps dry around the edges. Fresh from reviewing her notes, Clara is reminded of fish scales, but maybe of fish left out in the sun on a very hot afternoon. I like writers too, Gerard says. Storytellers are important. They remind us of things we would otherwise forget, don't you think? Clara makes the sound that she has developed after years of conducting interviews, 
useful friend she didn't have anything to say and wanted the other person to continue talking. Mmm. Would you like to hear a forgotten story? Gerard approaches, moving with quick steps that are more like hops, as though he cannot bear to be standing on one foot too long, he has to shift to the other. Clara wonders if his shoes are too small. He sits down next to her. Thousands of years ago, man was nothing, he begins. Hid in caves, frightened of the great beasts that flew the heavens and swam the seas, controlling wind and water, and the other two elements as well. For the great beasts breathed fire and with their sheer might ruled the earth. They were kings! Possessing terrible powers didn't make these ancient kings unkind. They looked at man cowering and shivering in his dark hole and felt pity for him. So man was given the gift of fire. As he speaks, Gerard moves closer. Clara gets a whiff of his aroma of sweat and seawater. Man, though, is a wily lot. Working with fire, he learned to make weapons. Then out of the caves he came, wielding wicked blades that, because he was jealous and greedy to own the world, he used to kill many of the beasts, forcing them into hiding. A hot jolt on her knee makes Clara start. It is Gerard, reaching a hand out to lightly brush an ant off her skin. A few went into the mountains, which only the most stubborn men climb. Most swam into the depths of the sea. Much better there, for man cannot conquer the ocean. Bring him down deep enough and the thin blood in his veins will boil and explode. Is this a European folktale? Clara asks. Gerard gives her a look that says he is not happy with the interruption, but answers anyway. It is a tale from the world and continues to this day. The fallen kings may be safe, but they are miserable. It is very cold where they must now live. Clara watches him shiver. Sometimes, some of them dare escape the cold. They break the surface, at least for a while, seeking the heat that comes from the sun and from the fiction of body rubbing against another body. Sex, you see, is much more enjoyable out of the deep sea. Gerard looks her in the eyes again, his iris shifting from brown to yellow and back. Clara finds herself willing him to put his warm hand back on her knee and let it stay there. The memory that controls man's mind may be short, but that which pulls his gut is forever. Up to now, the beasts have had to be careful when they walk among the legged. They have to remain hidden. Hide where and as what? As a newspaper reporter, maybe you can find a story to tell there. WRU, the letters demanded out of the screen of Clara's Nokia, just as she and Randy come within sight of Pina Colada. At one of the restaurant's outdoor tables, they spot a man clad in white shorts, striped shirt, and yellow sun visors. He looks up from fiddling with his cell phone, waving long, thin fingers. Over here! Standing up, the man's unbuttoned shirt separates in the middle, displaying a respectably sized paunch and a thick gold chain around his neck. Clara walks over and kisses Daddy Gary, Mariella Laxon's manager, one buzz on each cheek. She introduces Randy. They sit down, make small talk, order a round of fresh fruit juices. Four other people arrive, two reporters from competing newspapers and their photographers. Soon, they are joined by three magazine writers and a freelancer for a tabloid. More fruit juices are ordered. Where's Mariella? Someone remembers to ask. She's coming, she's coming, says Daddy Gary, while motioning for the waitress to bring the menu. Oversleeping, you know naman how it is with teenagers. After murmuring their understanding, everybody devotes the following minutes deciding what to eat. Digging into her pork chops in the middle of lunch, Clara pauses as a tabloid reporter brings the talk back to Mariella. Daddy Gary, does she have a boyfriend now? 
Nako, you have to ask her mom. You know naman, Mommy Lacson, she's super strict. Mariela can't even go out on dates, di ba? He stirs the air near his face with a woven fan. Looking around, he addresses the table. Does anybody want to share a tiramisu with me for dessert? Lunch ends with no sign of the movie star. Clara goes back to the resort while Randy plays paparazzi, taking pictures of celebrities half-naked on the beach. In the courtyard, she glances at the foreigner's cottage. There is no one there. Pausing under a coconut tree, she sends Daddy Gary a text message. Give me a one-on-one -on -one interview with Mariella or we won't make her party the main story in next week's issue. She waits one minute, and the expected reply comes. Of course! At the party tonight, promise! Walking to the reception area and finding Gigi there, she looks for Christy. Saul had said that the resort owner could introduce them around the island. She is led to the kitchen, a half-open door at the end of a dim corridor. Clara smells adobo cooking. You're Saul's reporter? Staring the stewing pot is a ridiculously beautiful woman of indeterminable age. Tall, slim, and golden brown, the kind of tropical beauty you could imagine on a Department of Tourism advertising poster, except that this one is wearing a stained blue apron instead of a barat saya. Clara says yes and tells the woman that she wants to see Bless. Christy takes the ladle out of the pot and puts it to her tongue to taste the sauce. I told Saul that story isn't good, she says, reaching for the pepper shaker. Makes Thailand look bad. Why don't you do a story in the nightlife? Lots of new bars just opened. Clara promises to pass the idea on to the editor of the lifestyle section. Christy sighs, drags the back of her hand across her forehead in a manner of all women exhausted by kitchen work. I'm busy, but Gigi can take you. Down the beach, left into the middle of the island, through crisscrossing dirt roads, and into a village of a few dozen Nipah huts facing each other across a dusty road just slightly wider than the ones leading up to it. Gigi goes to a house fenced with strips of rattan, knocking on a plywood door with faded green paint and a picture of the Immaculate Heart pasted at eye level. Tao po, she calls. Po tao! A shuffling behind the door and a woman peeks out. Through the narrow gap, Clara looks at her. Sharp cheekbones dotted with deep acne scars. Long black hair dry and piled in a careless bun on top of her head. Very red lipstick. Bless? No, that's Glenda. Gigi introduces Bless's housemate. She's not here anymore, ha? Huh? is the first thing Glenda says after the greetings are done with. We woke up yesterday and she wasn't here anymore. Glenda lets them into her room. Walls and floor made of bamboo, two wooden benches, and a linoleum folding table are the only pieces of furniture. There are three closed doors on the north and east walls. Did she leave anything behind? Clara asks. Some clothes, Glenda says. The baby she brought with her. She walks to the linoleum table. You want to make a merienda? I just ate, Clara says. But still a few minutes later, she is handed an oily peanut butter sandwich and a glass of warm coke. Nako, you're from a newspaper, Glenda says. I saw some movie stars at the disco last night. They were drinking a lot, ha? More small talk. I saw that Mariella, Glenda continues. Nako, she was drinking too, but little only. After she finishes her food, Clara asks to see Bless's room. It is a tiny bedroom with a single cot and a mat on the floor, each occupied by a woman's inert figure. There is a soft hissing sound. One of them is snoring. Glenda indicates the right wall. Clara opens the plywood doors of a closet. A few articles of clothing hang on a wooden rod. On the top shelf are a pillow and a blanket tidily folded. 
Glenda confirms that this was indeed Lassa's bed. Even if she were a small woman, she would have to sleep curled up. On the floor is a blue plastic pail. After dipping a finger in the liquid inside, Clara tastes seawater. Most of the interior walls are covered with postcards. A quick count tells Clara that there are five from Bali, three from Phuket, two from the Caribbean, one each from the Maldives and St. Tropez. There are some from local beaches, Palawan, Cebu, and Mindoro. Here and there are postcards from European cities. She always made customers and boyfriends promise to send her postcards, says Glenda from behind. Clara hears a sigh. She always wanted to go away, and now she's gone. On the long wall above Bless's pillow are photographs. One is of a long-haired girl, barefoot on the sand, a big smile on her face as she embraced Clara's neighbor, although the foreigner seemed much younger and healthier in this photo. She points it out. Oh, Gerard! He's a good friend to many of the girls on the island. Glenda begins to laugh softly, covers her mouth with both hands. The figure sleeping on the cot jerks up to a sitting position, glares at them. Punyata naman, magpatulog kayo! The woman curls back down, briskly pulling the floral print sheet up over her head, covering herself with giant hibiscus. Sunset Point is not much more than a horseshoe-shaped counter made of coconut wood and roofed with native grass, its sole claim to fame being that it is the only bar allowed to conduct business right on the beach, a mere few meters from the water's edge. The owner is a cousin of the mayor, Gigi had confided before giving her directions. As Clara hoists herself onto a bar stool, she scans the bamboo chairs and tables planted on the sand. There are a few families and young couples, but most are occupied by overweight white men accompanied by skinny local girls. What will it be, miss? The bartender asks, a big man in a ponytail and a blue muscle shirt, wiping his hands on a white cotton towel. She asks for a Diet Coke, smiles her thanks when the can and plastic straw are placed in front of her. It's going to be a beautiful sunset, the bartender says, making a move with his lips and pointing them behind her. Clara turns, looking at the stratus clouds layering the horizon. A red sailboat is making a swift diagonal pass across the water. When she turns back, the captain of Lovejoy is there, talking to the bartender. Clara catches his eye, gives a little wave. She knows that she has been recognized when she hears the giggle. So you found my Uncle Victor. He makes the introduction to the bartender. She's making a story on Bless's babies. Another giggle, this time ending in a snort. He walks off to the tables on the beach, shaking his head. Clara watches him emptying ashtrays. Young Gago grew up in Manila, Victor mutters. Knows nothing of life on the island. Clara introduces herself, flashes her press card. You know Bless the Migdig? Yeah. The bartender gets a tall glass from the sink and begins polishing it with his towel. I just want to ask some questions, is that okay? The barman shrugs. So you saw her babies? A nod. Can you describe them for me? A gift from the gods, as all children are, Thor says, a scraping of a chair and someone coughing. They turn to find the foreigner from the orange parasol sitting on the corner bar stool. Sunset time, Victor says. Your usual? Gerard nods and is served San Miguel Pale Pilsen. One of the few good things man invented, he says before putting the bottle to his lips. As he swallows, Clara watches his Adam's apple bobbing up and down. She has a sudden urge to lick it. Instead, she takes a long pull of her fizzy drink. Then, you knew Bless very well, I found out. Gerard turns away from the bar, looks toward the sea. When I first arrived, 
High noon was my favorite time of day. I'd lie down on the sand under the strongest sun and soak in all that heat. I fried, didn't I, Victor? Without waiting for a response, he continues. Now I've learned to appreciate the sunset. I had to. This body just isn't what it used to be. Clara looks at the scales on Gerard's hands. She realizes that she wants to see the man naked, but has a feeling that if he undressed, she would find the dry growth erupting all over his body. My time under the sun is up. I'm heading home. Not knowing exactly what Gerard has to do with it, but her instinct screaming that the man is part of her story, she asks, What about Bless? Gerard puts down his beard. I've decided that I want a story. I don't want to be forgotten so easily this time. He smiles, revealing pointed yellow teeth. He gives Clara the name of a cove off the main beach, with instructions to be there by midnight. Early in the evening, Randy's already happy with Mariella Laxon's Hawaiian luau party. There had been numerous photo ops, especially Mariella's Tahitian dance number and different celebrities posing with a giant lechon roasting on the spit. Clara contents herself asking quick questions of the other guests. No, it's not true that I'm courting Mariella, says a baby-faced actor with spiky hair. We're really just good friends. I'm wearing a Dolce & Gabbana top, a Dolce & Gabbana skirt, and my shoes are Dolce & Gabbana too, declares the actress who plays Mariella's mother in a soap opera. I wish Mariella health, peace, and happiness, a child star replies, flashing the dimples on her cheeks. Finally, at 10 p.m., Daddy Gary fetches Clara for the interview. They are locked in the ladies' room, the only place the reporter can use her tape recorder without party music drowning out Mariella's voice. The girl answers the questions dutifully, clarifying that she wasn't jealous of another young actress's acting award, protesting that her mother was not a stage mother, and denying that she has plans of working with another TV channel. Both actress and the reporter knew the drill. Clara had learned not to expect much from interviews with teenage starlets. Once in a while, you met a precocious sort, but usually questions that went beyond their career plans and the rumors surrounding them were answered with long pauses. It was a waste of tape. One more question and she was done. How's your love life? The young actress pushes a strand of hair behind her ears and licks her lips. Something is up, Clara knows immediately. She pushes. Now that you're 18, are you finally allowed to have a boyfriend? A rosy cheek flush spreads on Mariella's white mestiza skin. Clara smiles encouragingly. Well, mmm, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I guess I'm excited. I just met someone really interesting. He's, mmm, a little bit older. Mariella pauses, gives a big smile. Hey, this is off the record, okay? I have a new crush. I met him on the beach. We have these long talks in our own secret place every midnight, and he's so hot, so different from anyone I've ever met. The girl ends with a little shriek. What's his name? Clara asks, checking to see that her tape recorder is still rolling. Gerard? Finding a big piece of driftwood, Clara settles down to wait. Squeezing herself through the small opening in a rock wall separating the cove from the rest of the island, she has cut herself on the upper arm. She takes a piece of tissue from her pocket, 
dabs at the blood. Randy sits down beside her. What are we doing here? he asks. I don't know exactly, she answers truthfully. Randy seems satisfied with that and reloads film into his camera. There's a silver light from the moon, and the water's calm, making just the gentle splashes on the beach. She hears a sound, half stands before realizing that it's just the wind playing with the coconut leaves. A few more minutes of waiting and Gerard arrives, quick hopping through the trees towards them. With him are Victor and Christy, each carrying a big plastic pail with a lid. Gerard nods in their direction, keeps moving to the beach. Near the water's edge, he sits down on the sand and removes his boots. Before he can stand up again, Christy kneels beside him, wraps her arms around his neck. They kiss tenderly once. Then Gerard leans in. A ferocious sucking of lips follows, licking with tongues out and tugging on each other's flesh. From where she's watching, Clara can hear the sound they make. Wet slurps. Hanep, Randy says under his breath. Then Gerard breaks contact, gets up, and doesn't stop until he is thigh-high in the sea. He crouches and is covered up to his neck with water. This is good, he calls out to Clara. Walking was getting to be too difficult. Victor opens the plastic containers. Randy is quick, aiming his Nikon and taking one photo after another. By the light of the camera flash, Clara sees coiled things moving inside. Tipped into the ocean, they wriggle out, both a couple of meters long, sea serpents but with little arms. One looks back, and Clara is almost certain that in that pointed face there is something vaguely human. The things begin to swim in circles around Gerard. Do you want me to smile for your photo? he asks. Clara sees he is doing exactly that as he ducks his head completely underwater. Some time passes and they see nothing more, although the sea serpents are still swimming in their little circle. Clara looks at Christy. She was hugging her knees to her chest and crying. She was no good to Clara right now. Are you like him? She turns instead to Victor, standing on the water's edge. No, I'm just a man. Why are you helping him then? She asks. It's bad for business if you refuse, he says. They still have some power. Randy starts taking shots again, although this time his camera is aimed away from the water. Mariella Laxon is there, still in her party outfit of sarong and bikini top, a garland of plastic flowers around her neck. Seeing the gathered entourage, she begins to squeeze her way back through the hole in the rock wall. Wait, the gargling voice, but this time much louder than Clara had ever heard it. She turns and sees in the water a pair of yellow eyes staring at them from her reptilian face. A feeling of dread begins to form in the pit of her stomach. The giant head bends its neck left and right. A cracking sound accompanies the movements, bones and muscles long disused aligning into place. The mouth opens to display pointed yellow teeth. Clara decides that the creature is actually attempting a smile. Where are you going, my princess? Gerard's strange voice coming out of the monster's mouth. Didn't you tell me that you wanted to escape from your shallow little life? Then the creature leaps out of the water, unfolding in an arc over them. Clara can see its belly, shrunken and white. One of its claws is headed straight for Randy. Just when she thinks that the photographer's head is going to be sheared off, the sharp-looking nails retract. Marielle is not so lucky. They hear a scream. Clara remembers the sound of her girlish excitement from their interview. This is not the same kind of noise at all. It misses its target on the first try, but on the second go, the creature clamps its jaws on Mariella's upper arm. With a flick of its head, it tosses her in the air, straight into the water, delivering her to the circling serpents. The girl shouts and pushes them away, but she is no match for their teeth, smaller but just as sharp as their father's. 
The creature that was Gerard joins them. Wet, slurping sounds again, this time mixed with bones snapping, and finally, one long cry of pain. In less than a minute, the sea is almost calm again. The infants jump out of the water and into the air, twisting and coiling insanely, while the golden-yellow eyes turn to stud the people still standing on the beach. Clara stares back, sees the eyes change color to the palest brown she has ever seen. The finger-thin slice of heat she felt on her knee earlier that day returns, begins to creep up, reaching for her groin. Sweat begins to form on her upper lip. How nice it would be to take her clothes off and follow him into the sea, Clara starts to think. Scoopto! Randy exclaims, slapping a heavy hand onto Clara's left shoulder. Okay na okay! The reporter blinks, breaking eye contact. A splash and Randy starts shooting again. A long stretch of fin back and a tail in the air before they see nothing more but water disturbed into big waves. Soon even that is gone. The ocean goes quiet. They help Christy get up from where she is crouched on all fours, vomiting on the sand. After that, there is nothing more any of them can do. Walking back to the orange parasol, Clara wonders if Randy's photos will show more than black night and blurry objects. Then the senior reporter already starts thinking about how she's going to tell her readers that in a tropical paradise, her favorite teenage star has become virgin sacrifice to an ancient fire-breathing creature that spends its days drinking beer and seducing women. The hot spot on her knee glows faintly. She ignores it. It's just an ant bite, she tells herself, turning her mind back to writing her scoop. That was A Fishy Tale, written by Apple Lehano Masebu. It was published in the fiction anthology A Time for Dragons, edited by Vincent Simbulan and published by Anvil in 2009. Madame Masebu is a writer, product designer, and entrepreneur based in France. If you'd like to read more of her work, she's got a book of essays out called Provinciana, available at all fully booked branches. Also, we'll be revealing the origin of A Fishy Tale on the Pakinggan Pilipinas Facebook page. So, if I were you, I'd look for the Pakinggan Pilipinas Facebook page and like it. Yvette Tan, our narrator, is a fiction and travel writer based in Manila. We've featured her story, The Bridge, here on Pakinggan Pilipinas last year. And you can read more of her on her website, yvettetan.com. Thanks for dropping by and tune in again next month. This is Elise Ponsalan for Pakinggan Pilipinas. Ating kwento, pakinggan mo. For more audio fiction by Filipino writers, go to pakingganpilipinas.blogspot.com. Story copyright is owned by Apple Lehano Massiview and is used here with expressed permission.